Well, every November we have a very tangible reminder that we should be thankful people. For our nation, celebrating a day of thanks goes back as far as the Pilgrim Settlers. Throughout the years after our nation was officially formed, a day of thanksgiving was celebrated off and on from our very first president, George Washington, up until it was officially designated as a national holiday on the fourth Thursday of November under President Franklin D. Roosevelt. I found these words that were a part of a speech given by Abraham Lincoln, October 3rd, 1863. That's smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. I found these words to be very interesting. This appears to have been some kind of a State of the Union sort of speech where he essentially outlined the difficulties and victories that the nations had faced in the midst of the Civil War. He discussed both the tragedies of the war as well as the blessings that the nation had still enjoyed. This is a quote here. He he discusses some of the, the difficulty of the military conflict, and then he says, needful diversions Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals, have yielded more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield. And the country, rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. These are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed fit to me... It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our nation, our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged, and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as it may be consistent with the divine purpose, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union, end quote. Kind of a long quote, but I thought that was uh, quite quite an amazing uh, statement from our President of the United States. And those words seem a far cry from the sentiment of our earthly leadership today, and really the vast majority of the American population But the rich theological history of a day of giving thanks cannot be ignored. This nation may try its hardest to stamp out any vestiges of religion from its roots, but that's impossible. Thanksgiving really means nothing if you're not thankful to someone. 
Merriam-Webster defines the word thankful as being conscious of a benefit received. But again, received from whom? If there's nothing beyond, if there is no God, then everything is a great cosmic accident. And all the things that we would be thankful for are themselves accidents, mere chance. To give thanks for them would be to ascribe meaning to them, which they are, in fact, accidents. It would be illogical and pointless. On the contrary, to be thankful for something, some benefit received, means that it has meaning, it has purpose in your life, a purpose for which you are thankful. Purpose requires design. Design requires intelligence. Intelligent design would require great power and self-sufficiency. Great power to effect the design intended and self-sufficiency not to be limited by what was created. We would be subject to that intelligent, all-powerful, self-sufficient designer of all things. That designer, that maker would deserve our thanks for the benefit bestowed. That is reasonable. It's reasonable to conclude that. That's the least that we could do. But so incongruous is this holiday celebrated again by a nation that has run so far and so hard away from any vestiges of religion, that old stuffy morality. So desirous is this nation to rid itself of this intelligent, all-powerful, self-sufficient designer of all things. And yet, it cannot. No matter how hard we try every single year, we come back to the exact same thing, a day of thanksgiving. A day set apart for our nation to, quote, again, not forget the source from which the many extraordinary blessings that we have received have come. Well, how was your Thanksgiving? Did the people around your table give thanks for more than the food that they had in front of them? Did you all take time to think about all the benefits that had been bestowed on your lives collectively and the source from which they came? What about the day after Thanksgiving? Did you shift focus from Thanksgiving to Christmas, to putting up decorations, to gifts that are going to be under the tree, maybe gifts that you still need to buy for someone or gifts that you're going to get yourself? In your mind, and I'm talking to you, believer, did you move on from Thanksgiving after November 25th was done? Did you move on from considering the many benefits, the many blessings that you have in life and the source of those blessings? How about the day after that? What about today? Have you thought today through the many blessings that the Lord has bestowed on you? I bet you've thought of something hard, something difficult in your life, some inconvenience, some pain, some disappointment. Perhaps not something, but someone has been an inconvenience, a pain, or a disappointment to you today or this past week. And I'm sure you've thought of that. But have you also thought of the benefits and the benevolent one who gave them? Have you thought about those things enough to give him thanks today? The reality is for the Christian that we don't need a day to be thankful. We don't need a national holiday. We don't need to be reminded to gather together to give thanks. We, of all people, ought to be the most thankful. And if there were ever a word that could, we could use to characterize the Christian life, that could be it. Thankful. This morning we're going to look at a psalm of thanksgiving. While it's been, we're a bit removed from our series on the psalms that we went through last year, it is a fitting and appropriate continuation there. There's so much in the Psalms. One thing you cannot get away from is its high view of God and its high praise of God. We'll take a look at one such Psalm, Psalm 136. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. In the Psalm, we are encouraged 
to give thanks, we are encouraged, yes, commanded, to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love displayed in his acts as redeemer, I'm sorry, creator, redeemer, and provider. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love displayed through his acts as creator, redeemer, and provider. Now, I'm going to need your help reading through Psalm 136, just so that it's not only me uh, talking for this whole time. I'll read um, through verse up to verse 22, and then in verse 23, I'm going to need you guys' help to, to, to read through this last portion. Um, so, so follow along with me as we start Psalm 136. <clears throat> Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage. For his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now I'll read the first part and you read that, that uh, second part. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Thank you. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the reminder of your steadfast love, because your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, as we come before your word, I pray that you would speak for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Again, in this text, we'll see the command to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love displayed through his acts as creator, redeemer, and provider. A couple of observations before I go through the text. Notice that there is a command here. The command to give thanks is not a new command. In fact, it isn't really a command to give thanks specifically. The word translated here actually means something more like to confess. I mentioned that earlier. The act is confession. We are talking about, we talk about being confessional as Christians. We hold to objective propositional truths that we corporately confess. We just read 
a creed that the church has confessed throughout the years. We hold to these truths, we believe these truths, we live by these truths, we put our confidence and trust in the Lord of whom we speak. When we refer to these truths, we confess him in all his glory, and we confess him, our confession of him, and all of his acts towards creation, to us in particular as believers, is a means of praising him. And as we confess these truths back to him with gratitude for who he is and all of what he's done, we are giving thanks. And again, this is not a new command. In the Old Testament, when David brought back the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Chronicles 16, he appointed Levites to serve before the Ark and Asaph and his brothers to sing a song of thanksgiving. The first words of that song in 1 Chronicles 16, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And he went on to discuss all the Lord's redeeming acts towards his people. Psalm 100 a psalm that we all know well, into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That's a confession. Psalm 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Isaiah, and looking forward to the day of the Lord in Isaiah 12, 4. He says, you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. And you think about all the similarity between those verses. We're talking about giving thanks to the Lord, confessing him before the peoples. Who are the peoples? The nations. That the Lord's steadfast love endures forever is a confession that we make before the nations, before the world. It's a confession we make with one another. What we say with our lips and how we say it, that we ought to be thankful is something that the New Testament writers often picked up on. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be giving of thanks. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. We love this passage when we think about prayer, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and I might circle back to this later but part of the reason why we're commanded to give thanks in prayer is that we're usually praying for something right like there's some need that we have in our lives where we're commanded to give thanks in prayer we're commanded to give thanks in prayer meaning we're commanded to think through all the reasons why we have to be thankful as we're making our request to God what does that do for your soul it reminds you that God is faithful. When you go out of your way to think about the reasons you have to be thankful, it helps you to remember that the request that you're making to God will be heard because he's faithful to answer. He has been in the past, and you can thank him for that. Colossians 1, 11 and 12, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 2, 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in your faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul has a lot to say in Colossians about thanksgiving. Colossians 4, 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I love uh, this... Uh, Short passage at the end of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance, for this is the will of God for you in Christ. 
We are confessional Christians. The people of God are confessional. We just, again, read part of that creator confession earlier in the service. We confess him, the Lord, in all of his glory, for all of his goodness. We give thanks to him. We are to do this at all times, in every circumstance. That's to characterize our lives as believers. Again, not just one day of the year. Let me ask you, does that describe your faith? Are you a one day of the year thanksgiver? Notice also the general focus of our confession. Generally speaking, the focus is the repeated theme that we see going through this hymn, which is his steadfast love endures forever. This is his faithful love, often considered in theology his covenant faithfulness. This character quality brings us back to the memorial name that God gave to the people of Israel in Exodus 34, 6, when Moses asked that the Lord show him his glory, and the Lord passed before Moses, he hit him in the cleft of the rock and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, the glory of the Lord, his greatness, his majesty is tied up in that designation that he proclaimed about himself. This is who the Lord is. This is a part of his essential being. One of the key ways that he describes himself is that he is a faithful, loving God. He has steadfast love. This is what God says about himself. Now, this psalm, Psalm 136, was often associated with the Passover. It was to be sung antiphonally as a call and response like we did in those last four verses. Imagine the whole congregation of Israel gathered together, recounting the the works of God. And repeating to one another over and over again, for his steadfast love endures forever. God wants them to get it. He wants them to remind one another of these truths by the repetition of song to encourage one another with this truth. He wants for everyone who hears them chanting this repeatedly to get it. His steadfast love endures forever. And before we move on, I think we make a great to-do about wanting to share the gospel, about properly adorning the gospel with our good works, or knowing just the right things to share. Sometimes we feel like we can't share the gospel because we don't know what to say. How about just being thankful in your life? How about if people knew you, of the people who know you, if they knew nothing else, if they knew that you were thankful to your God and that you're thankful for your God? How about we just start there? And the focus is not on some particular blessing bestowed alone as we think broadly about this. The scope of the focus of the thanksgiving in this passage is the greatness and grandeur of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's about his character, his person. The steadfast love of the Lord is not only about me as an individual. It's not only about some particular victory or achievement or blessing in my life alone. Thus, I can always in every circumstance give thanks to him because his steadfast love endures forever. No matter what's going on in my life, that's true. He's always going to be a God who is steadfast, who is faithful in his love. And we see that in so many different ways as we go through this passage, and that's part of the point. Let's turn our attention to the main body of the text now. As we look at the psalm itself, Psalm 136, there are three major movements. Verses 1 through 3 and verse 26. Verses 1 through 3 is kind of an introduction. It's the introductory command to give thanks verse 26 is the conclusion it's just a recap it's another command to give thanks what we have in between there there are three different sections verses four through nine we're told to give thanks for his steadfast love as creator of all 
verses 10 through 24 were to give thanks for his steadfast love as redeemer of his people. In verse 25, we're told to give thanks for his steadfast love as provider for all. Give thanks to him as creator, redeemer, and provider. As I read through the text from here on, I won't repeat that last part, for a steadfast love endures forever for the sake of time. Let's look at those first three verses as we think about that introductory call. Again, this is a confession. It is a word of praise. It's a giving of thanks. He says, give thanks to the Lord. Again, confess him, acknowledge him, exalt in him, for his, he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good. There is no greater good. There's no greater good to pursue in this life in all the cosmos than the Lord. He is the highest good. That's a confession of every believer. You can rightly say a believer is one who has been made to see the goodness, the inherent goodness of the Lord. One author said this in, in um, quoting Charles Spurgeon, he is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is the good, is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good, the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. For this, he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. Moving on, we see multiple fours in this first verse. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. We see the sufficient reason behind the call to give thanks. We give thanks to him for this because he is good. And we know that he is good because his steadfast love endures forever. We give thanks to him for this. We confess him for this. He is the Lord. In your Bibles, the word for Lord there should be in all caps. It's a reference to the, again, back to that memorial name for God. We've talked about this memorial name before. This is the memorial name for the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a name to be taken flippantly. Someone's name, people were named very particularly in ancient times. Their name is indicative of their character, their essence, the stuff that they're made of, what they came to be known for. The Lord is no different. Again, I read that passage in Exodus from earlier. He's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. That's who the Lord is. In other words, there is no other God. There is no God save the Lord. Deuteronomy 4.39 Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no other. This was said in the context of recounting how the Lord had laid waste to Egypt in order to bring his people out. Thus the Lord cannot be compared to any other supposed God. The Lord the God of the Bible, the God in the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is not the God of Islam. He's not the God of Confucianism. He's not the God of Buddhism. He's not just the man upstairs. He's not a figment of our imagination. He is a person. He has a name. His name is the Lord. Here he is identified as the God of gods, meaning he is God Almighty. This is a Hebrew way of saying that he is the godliest of gods. You could say that he is God over gods. That would also be accurate, but there are no other gods. The Bible leaves no room for there to be no other gods. He alone is God, and we must unapologetically confess this truth. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. The term for Lord there is the lowercase, L-O-R-D. It means ruler or chief. He is the chief over all chiefs, the chiefliest of chiefs. 
the president of presidents, the most presidently one. He is the one who alone does great wonders. He does marvelous things, extraordinary things, miraculous things, things that cannot be done by mere men. They're supernatural things. You know, the supernatural is not inconceivable if there is one who stands outside of nature and above nature because he created nature. There has to be supernatural something or someone that is supernatural in that sense. The Lord is God. There is no other. The Lord is good. There is no other. The Lord does great and miraculous things, wonderful things, and there is no other. He alone possesses and provides his steadfast enduring love. These are basic truths of the faith. If you don't get this, then you don't get the God of the Bible. If you don't confess this about the God of the Bible, that he is exclusively the only living God, that there is no other, that he alone is good, the giver of every good thing, then you don't know him and you're not a believer. You have no true faith in him, for this is who he is. People can say they know you all they want, but if they don't know about you, if they don't know the things that you say about yourself, if they don't know your character, your person, then they can't say that they know you. We all understand how that works. I wonder, do you know the Lord this morning? Do you know him in the way that he describes himself? For those who do know him, we're here exhorted to give thanks to him, to the Lord. That is his name. To give thanks to him, to confess him alone, speak of his goodness, of his greatness in every circumstance at all times because he never changes. Well, again, what does a steadfast love look like? Again, we, we mentioned that we'll see that in three primary ways. We see his steadfast love through his acts of creation, redemption, and through his provisions. Look at verses 4 through 9 concerning his acts as creator. To him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. All of this describes his acts as creator. It, it has echoes of the first chapters of Genesis. Again, verse 4 said, to him who alone does great wonders. Well, what wonders are we talking about? With respect to his acts as creation, he describes them further. To him who by understanding made the heavens. God in his infinite wisdom created all things. He says it's by his understanding. It was not a haphazard event. He used his understanding, his wisdom to create out of nothing a world so intricate, so delicate, that we are still desperately struggling to try to figure it out. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, this again brings us back to Genesis 1, a reminder that the earth was created out of water, that it once sat in water, encompassed by water, until the flood when judgment came through water. The Lord promised to never again destroy the earth by water. Thus the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. Back to the text, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over by day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. Again, hearkening back to Genesis God displaying both his skill in what he created and his wisdom, the sun and moon and the stars have been created as great as they are, as necessary as they are for life for us. They are created things. They're subject. They were made for us by the Lord Almighty. That the Lord is creator speaks to his greatness, his glory. We learn of his glory through his act of creating. And this gives us reason to confess him, to give thanks to him. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We acknowledge this. We see how creation declares his handiwork. 
And even that it illustrates the all-sufficient power of his word. That's part of the point in Psalm 19, that the all-sufficient power of his word is just like the impact that the sun has on the cosmos, that the sun has on our planet. It warms us. It's, it, it helps to sustain life. Just as the sun does that for our physical life, the word of God does that for us spiritually. That's the point of Psalm 19. God teaches us things through his creation, but the world doesn't see it. The world responds to the glory of God on display in his creation generally of one, in one of two ways. One, it suppresses the truth of God and refuses to honor him as God. Paul says this in Romans 1.19. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Or it refuses to give thanks to God and instead exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships and serves the creator, the creature. Again, in Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Those who in the past or in the present worship the sun god or the moon god or the stars or the trees or the animals and eventually even themselves. In other words, though they can know some things about God by what he's created, they reject what can be known in favor of a God of their own imagination. They don't see the wonder of his acts in creation. They see only accidents. They don't see the greatness of his understanding, his creativity, the intelligent design. They only see chance. They don't see that creation is particularly made for us. Again, even the sun and moon established for our benefit. They don't see that we, as a part of his creation, are fearfully and wonderfully made. They only see evolutionary processes that begin by accident and remain only by virtue or survival of the fittest. They don't see the glory of God and what he's made and thus see no reason to give thanks. Again, Paul's indictment in Romans, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. He says this also in, I think it's in 1 Timothy at the end, or 2 Timothy, one of the Timothys. He says something to Timothy, basically to the effect that those who are outside of Christ, the unbelieving world, one of the, the primary issues with them is that they don't give thanks to God. They don't really acknowledge him. And you hear that when people talk about Thanksgiving, right? Having a, a grateful attitude about things and being thankful. You ever ask somebody, who are they thankful to? That's a good question to, to kind of lean into when people talk about Thanksgiving. I mean, at this point, nobody's talking about Thanksgiving anymore because we moved on to Christmas and all the you know, stores are decked out with all the Christmas decorations and all the, the sales. that you know We've moved on from... Um, that, uh, that kind of a moment in our, in our nation, we've moved on to, to, to Christmas. But just in case you have the opportunity to talk to someone about it, ask them how their Thanksgiving was and ask them who they're thankful to. They'll have no answer. But again, that should be a part of our regular confession as believers, that the Lord, our God, our creator God is good, and we see that in the good things that he's made. Look next at the section concerning his acts as redeemer. This is a longer section. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 10. 
and brought out Israel from among them with a strong hand and outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. This is a history lesson. This is a reminder of, again, verse 4, the great wonders that God has done with respect to the redemption of his people. The Exodus will forever stand as the redemption event in the life of Israel. God called them out of Egypt and he brought them out by his power. They could not bring themselves out of slavery. They had no ability, no power. Some of them even lacked the will. You see that as they leave out of Egypt and they start grumbling and complaining when things get difficult. We should, we should have stayed in Egypt. We had it so good there. We had so much meat, so much bread to eat. But they were slaves. And all they could think about was how easy it was instead of the freedom they had in the Lord. In Exodus... God rejected and humiliated the gods of the major superpowered nation of that day. We, shouldn't, we can't neglect that fact. Egypt was not a pushover. Egypt had conquered many. When Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? To Moses, when Moses said, let my people go, he meant it. He bowed to no one. He recognized the authority of no one. He never had to. And yet the Lord showed Pharaoh who he was in no uncertain terms. And they used Pharaoh in Egypt to display his great power. This was a miraculous event, a miraculous redemption of God's people. And his people would never forget it. And rightly so. Again, he brought them out of Egypt to him who struck down the firstborn. And brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. The death of the firstborn was the, great, the last great plague that the Lord leveled against Egypt before Pharaoh released the people. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, again, another miraculous event in the course of his redemption of Israel, causing the Red Sea to split in two so that people could walk through on dry land. Of course, the Prince of Egypt movie uh, that was made a number of years ago kind of showed this, uh, this image of people walking through and, you know, this great big whale kind of swimming, you know, through the wall of water. I don't know how historically accurate that was, but it's, it's, it's at least a good image um, to think about just how how amazing it would have been to be there and to see this wall of water, water being separated from one side to the other, something completely unnatural, impossible. But God did it and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. God made a distinction between his people and the people of Pharaoh. Lest you think the God of the Bible doesn't discriminate. He does. He discriminated between the firstborn of Egypt and those who by faith sacrificed the Passover lamb and spread the blood above the door. He discriminated between them on their journey by allowing Moses and Israel again to pass through the sea while Pharaoh's army was drowned. All roads do not lead to the salvation of God. There's only one road, only by faith in the one way that God has prescribed for salvation. He brought them out, to, out, of, out of Egypt. He brought them to the promised land and subjugated nations before them. Verse 16, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings. Again, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, Og, the king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel's servant. 
There's no reason why this should have worked, why Israel should have escaped slavery from Egypt, or why they should have been able to freely travel into foreign lands, displacing them and taking them over. But it worked because the Lord was at work on behalf of his people. God had determined to bring judgment upon the lands into which they were going. Because he is Lord over all, he has the privilege and the authority to do that. And he used his people to do that. And he brought them out and he gave them a land that he promised them. Remember, it was his land. It is his land. All the land is the Lord's land. He can do with it whatever he wants. Verses 23 and 24, a summary of the preceding redemptive events that took place in the life of Israel. It is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. Again, we're commanded to give thanks, to confess him. What greater reason do we have to confess the goodness of the Lord than for his redemptive work in our lives? Our redemption, the salvation that we have to, and enjoy as Christians, if we have nothing else, is enough to fuel our gratitude, our obedience to this command to give thanks for the duration of our lives and beyond. The cross is the historical redemptive event that the church looked back upon. That is a history lesson that we point to. Far too often we think about the cross as an idea. That Christ died for us is merely a truth claim that exists in our minds and hearts. But the, new, the writers of the New Testament, the eyewitnesses who saw it happen, who gave their lives to confess the authenticity of Jesus' claims, would shudder from that. The cross is an actual event that happened in space and time, in history, and we as confessional Christians look back to that time in the same way that Israel looked back to the events of the Exodus. By the actual physical death of Jesus on a cross, God called us out of sin, brought us out of sin, having paid for our redemption by the blood of his son, conquered sin and death, and has given us a new kingdom where righteousness dwells and with the hope of eternal life. He remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. We were chatting about this a little bit earlier, but of course our greatest foe, our greatest enemy, the greatest danger that every human being has and faces as a part of the cosmos which God created is God himself. And that's because of our sin. Because our sin creates a separation between us and God. And I think on one level, people are kind of okay with that. Like, you know, I'll do my thing and God can do his thing. But it's not just that there's a separation, right? It's that there's enmity. Is that we are enemies of God apart from Christ. And God doesn't respond well to his enemies because he's holy. And he has to judge sin because he's holy. Because he's holy and those who are enemies of God reject his holiness, and dishonor his holiness. And if any one of us are dishonored, what do we want? We want justice, right? If someone like the President of the United States is dishonored, he deserves justice for the glory that's due to him, the honor that's due to him because of his position. How much greater the king of the universe? How much greater honor is due him? How much greater consequence should there be for disrespecting and dishonoring the Lord of the universe? That's why the unbelieving world is in danger. Every single moment, hanging by a thin thread of God's grace over the fires of hell, 
That's the picture that Jonathan Edwards gave when he was preaching about the unbelieving world. Nothing but the grace of God, the common grace of God, withholding them from judgment at any moment. And at any moment, that, that thin line of grace could snap. And God would be right for it. God saved us. He called us out from sin. He brought us out by the blood of Jesus. We could not do it on our own. We had no power nor any desire. But God in his grace, his everlasting love, his steadfast love brought us out from bondage to sin and death. And he gives us new life in Christ. Do you think often of how God has redeemed you? Do you give him thanks for that? Not just for salvation in general. No doubt someone has asked you what you're thankful for and your default word is salvation. I'm thankful for my salvation, yeah. It's kind of like the kid in Sunday school class who always answers Jesus, right? When the Sunday school teacher asks a question, you know, the the default answer is Jesus because that's the answer to everything in Sunday school. But I want you to think about how God has redeemed you. By this I mean, again, the man Jesus lived, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, appeared to... 500 plus individuals after he rose, ascended to heaven before these same witnesses, promised to return again just as sure as the same time he came. He redeemed you, believer, by an event that took place in history some 2,000 years ago. And that we may and should confidently speak of as we confess the Lord. If Jesus didn't die in history, if he wasn't physically raised from the dead, then our salvation means nothing. It all hinges on that. The actual event, him being here, on account of the resurrection of Jesus, we're free from the power of sin, Romans 6.6. 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. On account of the resurrection of Jesus, we are assured of justification. The payment was made in full. Romans 4.25, who was delivered up, speaking of Jesus, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or read all of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. On account of the resurrection, we are assured a physical, literal resurrection to eternal life. 1 Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The man Jesus did live. He did die. He did rise from the dead. He does give victory over sin and death. Again, how has he redeemed you? Think about that. And now think about how he's redeemed you. How did he bring you out? And from what? Were you a drunk? Were you a liar? Were you a fornicator? I had a pretty wicked temper growing up. My mother could attest to that. But what has he done for you? Confessing that can help someone. I'm not saying we should have a service where we confess all our sin. That'd be pretty awful, and we'd probably all be scared of each other. Um, But I'm saying that it would be appropriate to share one-on-one how God has redeemed you, because I think that'll help other people who are struggling with some of the same kinds of things. The salvation that we have, again, the redemption that we have from God in Christ is the core confession of Christianity. If you want a summary of what it means to be Christian, the core truths of Christianity, again, 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to many witnesses, Paul says. And before I leave this point, just a couple of quick things to add. Being reminded of this truth should motivate us in a number of different ways. One, to be merciful toward others. As we think about the salvation that God has given to us, we ought to show mercy to others. Titus 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once... Well, let me, let me take a step back there. Titus 3, I'll read verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And listen to this. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly upon us. So we should be considerate of others as we see them struggling with sin, but also as we consider the salvation that God has given to us We should remember that God can save anyone. If he can save us, he can save anyone, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, For God who said, Light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that after he says, Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, we don't lose heart in proclaiming the truth of the gospel because we know that God has saved us. The Lord is God. The Lord is good. The Lord does great things as creator and redeemer of his people. Quickly here, look at verse 25. We see that he also displays his steadfast love as provider for all. It says simply, he gives food to all flesh. You could easily miss this point. You could gloss over this phrase. But we have to understand this also. The Lord, on account of his steadfast love, provides for all. Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, he makes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 17, David says that he gives children the fruit of the womb to all, believer and unbeliever. If this wasn't enough, the Lord has left the witness of the church. We've been talking through, preaching through 1 Timothy and Pastor Chris has mentioned a number of times just the the truth that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Why has God left the pillar and support of the truth? We know internally that we have the truth in the word of God, right? But what is the purpose of saying that the church is the pillar and support of the truth? It's for the world to see. We hold up the truth as the church. We ought to by the way we live. That's a part of God's common grace to humanity that he has left a witness for himself in the world, in the church. That's why it's so significant how we live and act as a church. The call to give thanks, the command itself, is in this respect universally applicable because all people, really all of God's creation, has benefited from his steadfast, faithful love, whether they choose to acknowledge it or not. As we conclude, we see the universal application of this command is underscored by the last verse. This final verse, the conclusion, verse 26, again forms a bookend to the psalm, referring back to the Lord this time as the God of heaven. 
Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord, the Lord who is good, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the wonder-working God is the God of heaven. All are subject to him. All have benefited from his steadfast love. Thus all should at all times and every circumstance confess his goodness and give thanks to him. Again, in this text, we're commanded to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love displayed through those different ways. His acts as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. I like the way Al Mohler put it when commenting on Thanksgiving. He says, we are not as Christians grateful as an attitude. A lot of people talk about that, right? We're not just grateful as an attitude. We're thankful as a calling in obedience to God. Believer, do you see that as a part of your calling? Do you understand that Thanksgiving is for us not a holiday? It's not a one day a year thing. It's not even an option. It's a command. It's a confession. As a final point of application, perhaps you're one who struggles with giving thanks. Perhaps you're in a particularly difficult season of life now. Perhaps the holidays more than bringing joy tend to bring sorrow over something or someone lost to you. Perhaps you've just never had the habit of giving thanks. It's never been modeled to you. I would encourage you with just one thing. Start a thankfulness journal. It's not an official title. It's just what it sounds. My family's done this in the past, and we've benefited from it. This is just a place where you record the things for which you are thankful. And that's it. Just that. Just write down the things you have to be thankful for. Start with this psalm and the points of the sermon. Think broadly about how God is at work in the world and then think about how God has particularly worked in your life. Write it down. Use it to fuel your prayers with thanksgiving, even your confession to the world. When someone asks you the reason for the hope that you have in the Lord, why you go to church, why you read the Bible, why you talk about Jesus, break out that thankfulness journal and say, this is why, because his steadfast love endures forever. Well, may the Lord give us all grace and encouragement as we think on and confess his goodness, his steadfast, enduring love for his glory and our good. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your